All right, if you could start wrapping your conversations to a close. I think I need one of those tambourines. Shake that around. That ought to help. All right, we've reached the point in our service where we open up the word together and see what the Lord has to say to us. Uh, if you're just joining us, welcome. My name is Tart George. I'm one of the people on staff here. And if you are just joining us, we are in a Lent series uh, looking at some of the teachings of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem and on the way to the cross. And so if you open your bulletins, you have the reading in front of you, and Dilip is going to be reading for us. Please follow along. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 18, verse 1 to 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Philip. An unspeakable botch. If you've been reading the news recently, you may have come across these words among international headlines. These were the words used to describe Spain's recent purchase of 31 brand new commuter trains. The project, which cost approximately 250 million euros, was an ambitious one, to say the least. The goal was to replace a fleet of old trains with brand new models that were superior in every single way. They were faster, more modern, more efficient, and more spacious than ever before. In short, the manufacturer promised to deliver Spain the greatest fleet of trains that the country had yet seen. There was only one small hiccup. You see, the trains didn't actually fit on the tracks. <laughs> Last month, officials realized in horror that the company designing their trains had been given incomplete measurements. You see, they hadn't considered that there are destinations all across the country with tunnels that simply cannot accommodate these larger, better trains. In their zeal for greatness, they had built something that was fit for the platform, but not something that was fit for the destination. It was a mistake that cost millions in work hours, and the project has now been sent back to the drawing board, delayed at least two years. It is, as President Miguel Rovella described it, an unspeakable botch. Well, why do I share this story? Well, I think the story illustrates something about what Jesus is trying to teach us today about greatness in the kingdom of God. 
Because like this train manufacturer, all of us, all of us, have this same preoccupation with building something truly great. It's not a train you understand, but it's a life that is characterized by true greatness. And as our story illustrates, we need accurate measurements in order to build such a life. Without them, we risk building based on whatever we fancy most or believe to be truly great. And that will ultimately not take us to our destination. You see, if we're not careful, we can spend our lives building greatest trains, the greatest trains that are bound for nowhere. And Jesus wants to prevent that unspeakable botch. And so in our passage today, he gives us some measurements for how we are to build our lives in order to reach that destination in heaven. You can look with me at the passage. He invites us to consider two things this morning. First, the posture of true greatness. This is how we ought to think. And second, the practice of true greatness. That is how we are to act. The posture of true greatness and the practice of true greatness. Let's look at those together. Well, you know, the context of this passage is pretty important. The disciples have been traveling on the road with Jesus, and they've been listening to his teachings. Now, twice now, they have, in previous chapters, Jesus has told them about what is going to happen when they arrive in Jerusalem. He's told them plainly that he's going to be betrayed, rejected by the chief priests, and sentenced to death. And yet, what we find when we read the Gospels is that the disciples just don't quite get it, do they? They've seen him preach the gospel, heal the sick, make the lame walk, open the eyes of the blind, and even raise the dead. This guy is going places. Surely, this is just the beginning. Scholars think that disciples probably expected some kind of major religious or political revolutions when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. Here's the Messiah coming to set things right, and we're going with him. The kingdom is basically at hand. And the immediate question that enters their mind is this, if Jesus is about to inaugurate his new kingdom, what does that now mean for us, his closest followers? Their conclusion is that there must be positions of authority now up for grabs. Now is the time to secure their ranks in the government of Jesus. And so it's really quite ridiculous. They begin debating about each of their merits and arguing about which one of them is truly the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Evidently, they can't seem to decide this issue among themselves, and so they come to Jesus with this audacious question. They ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Like, just settle this for us. Who is your right-hand man? Who is your favorite? And Jesus does something quite surprising, doesn't he? He calls a child into their midst, Then he stands him in the very center of attention, in the position of most importance for all of them to see. And then he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never, never enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine that? What a slap in the face. They're talking about who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven and who deserves most glory and honor. And Jesus says, forget that. Forget that. What makes you think that you're even fit for the kingdom? This is a shocking response from Jesus. 
I mean, you have to remember, these are Christ's closest followers who have been with him from the very beginning of his ministry. No one, but no one has heard more about the kingdom of heaven than these men have here. And yet their response shows us there's something really important that followers of Jesus often fail to grasp about this kingdom. I think it's this, that the kingdom is not me-centric. The kingdom is not me-centric. You and I are simply not at the center of this kingdom. You're invited, certainly, and you're called to be involved without question, but you are not the main attraction. It's not about you. I think there are many of us today who really need to hear that message because we often come to Jesus with these ideas about what he can do for us and plans for how he can further our agendas, our interests, our greatness. You see, we lack a proper posture. We have this implicit idea, I think, that my desires for my life and God's desires for my life are in complete alignment. But as this passage shows us, that's not always the case, even for the most committed followers of Jesus. Because the danger that this passage presents, men and women, is that you can exhibit all the outward signs and behaviors of being a committed follower of Jesus, just like these men, and still not be on the road to the kingdom of heaven. And that is a truly frightening thought. I think that should make us sit up and listen like it did these men. I was recently reading an article by Pastor J.D. Gurr where he reflects on his early years in ministry. I think what he shares here about his experience is so honest and so revealing about this human desire for greatness. Listen to what he says. He writes, I entered ministry with the same ambitions many young pastors do. I sincerely wanted to reach people for Jesus, but I was also pretty interested in making a big name for myself. I wanted a large church, and I was pretty sure that God did too. So it seemed like a win-win for us both. Looking back, however, I realized that I didn't just want the kingdom of God to grow. I wanted the kingdom of JD to grow too. He concludes, I realized that somewhere along the way, thy kingdom come had gone jumbled up with my kingdom come. And they are not, in fact, the same. Do you see what he's saying here? Because I think this applies not just to pastors, but to anyone who really wants to follow Jesus seriously. This is what sin does. It hijacks the kingdom of God for our own personal gain, and you must resist the temptation to allow that. You have to understand, Christian, that there is a constant war being waged at the greatness and minds of all believers. It is a conflict between God's desires and my desires, God's way and my way, thy kingdom and my kingdom. And you are called with every fiber of your being to continuously, mercilessly put down the uprising and bury your kingdom in the dirt. Because if you don't, Jesus says, it will inevitably bury you. He says in verse three, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
The Greek word he uses here is this verb strepo. It means to change direction or turn around. He's saying that unless you turn around and return, you are headed in a direction that is actually moving further and further away from the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Why is that? It's because any kingdom that centers on something that is not God cannot possibly end up where God resides. Do you follow me? Let me illustrate this for you by way of example. You understand that in order for a compass to work, it needs to point towards a true north. This is a fixed point that never changes and is always dependable and reliable. That is God. That is God. If you center your life on God and his kingdom, if you make him the thing that you gaze at most, you will most certainly arrive at your destination in heaven. Guaranteed. That's what the gospel tells us. But if you center your life on yourself and building your own kingdom, if your greatness is the thing that matters most to you and enamors you, you're going to end up utterly lost. You are not going to be happy where that road leads. And I grant you, that sounds really harsh and maybe even arrogant. If you're here and explain the Christian faith, it sounds almost like Jesus is saying, it's my way or the highway. And to be sure, that would be very arrogant, unless it was actually true. Look with me at verse three again. I want you to see that these are not the arrogant or proud words of Jesus. I mean, the amazing part about this entire chain exchange is that Jesus actually cares enough to correct them. Do you notice that? He loves them enough to tell them the God-honest truth about where they're headed, and he loves you and I in much the same way. Because the real question that is implicitly asked here is this, who is actually on the throne of your life? Who is actually in control? Whose kingdom will you actually serve and trust? Listen, if you call yourself a Christian, then it must be Christ and no other. You don't have to live that way, mind you. And to be sure, many people don't. But if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, my friend, you must make room for the king. There is no other way. So what does that mean for us? What is Jesus wanting us to do here? Well, he says in verse three that our posture for seeking greatness, is, it's all wrong. It's all wrong. He wants you to turn and change directions. How? He tells us in verse four, become like children. Become like children. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What a fascinating moment. Look with me at our text. This little kid who is not even named suddenly becomes a picture of the greatest person in the kingdom of heaven. This, apparently, is what greatness is supposed to look like. Now, something you have to know about the ancient world is that children were not considered very highly, not like our culture. A child was a person of little importance in Jewish society. He was subject to his elders and seen as a responsibility. In everyday affairs, he was quite unimportant. He couldn't lead or fight or acquire important wisdom. He couldn't even contribute to the family as a whole. 
In short, a child was someone to be looked after, not to be looked up to. So why? Why is this child a picture of greatness in the kingdom of heaven? It's because this child is completely dependent. He is entirely at the mercy of his caregiver. You understand that a child is completely dependent on others for health, happiness, and love. Everything he or she has must be earned or procured by another. It's true. A child simply does not have the means to take care of themselves. He or she is desperately needy. And here's the kicker. So are you. So are you. You have to ask, why does Jesus present this child to his disciples? It's because that's what they really are. They just don't know it yet. They're talking about these great things that are so beyond them because they think they're people of rank and substance in God's kingdom. And Jesus is saying, don't you know your place? Don't you know your place? You are entirely dependent. You can do nothing on your own. Men and women, a posture of true greatness in the kingdom requires you to know and understand your place before God. Whether you realize it or not, you are this child. You are not as wise or strong or capable as you think you are. The fact that you have money in the bank or breath in your lungs or food in your belly or loved ones who care about you has nothing to do with you. Even your intellect and your reason is from the Lord. Your ability and your health is from the Lord. Your possessions, your education, your vocation, your salvation. Your regeneration, adoption, justification, and sanctification. There is nothing that you could achieve apart from your God. Don't you see? You are a passive recipient of God's immeasurable free grace. You are nothing if not a dependent. There is nothing on God's green earth for which you can truthfully say, I did that, or I earned that. You have a caregiving God who has given you whatever lot or little that you have. You are this child. And listen, the degree to which you are able to grasp this knowledge is the degree to which you will become and remain truly great in the kingdom of heaven. Because not only does that make you truly great in God's sight, but it is also, astonishingly, what qualifies you to enter into the kingdom of heaven. When you understand your brokenness and your sin and your utter helplessness to do anything good that God desires, the gate of heaven, the gates of heaven open wide to you. You will stop looking at your own greatness and you will instead discover that the greatest person in the kingdom of heaven stands ready to help you. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one who humbled himself and actually became a human child. By God's deliberate plan, he gave up all the greatness he had in heaven and he came to world to save sinners like you and me. Sinners who insist on our own greatness, our own way, our own kingdom. You see, he saw the path that you were on and he knew that it would lead to destruction. And so he did the unthinkable. 
He humbled himself unlike anyone has ever done in the history of the world or ever do and went to the cross so that you could receive God's forgiveness. And listen, I know that you've heard that before if you attend this church, but I want that to really sink in. I do. I want you to stop for a moment and listen to what the Apostle Paul writes about this Jesus in Philippians 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, emptied himself by taking on the form of what? A servant, and being formed, born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. There it is. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even that on the cross. And now here it is. Listen. Therefore, he says, therefore. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. Did you catch all that? Don't miss what he's saying here. Listen, do you know what the disciples will be doing on the last day when Jesus returns? They will be bowing their knees before the name of Jesus. Do you know what you and I and Christians everywhere will be doing on the last day? We will be bowing our knees before the face of Jesus. Do you know what demons, presidents, billionaires, and celebrities will be doing on the last day? They will be bowing their knees before the name of Jesus. Whether with joy and gladness or fear and trembling, every person who has ever lived is going to be on their knees before the face of Jesus. We will all be confessing the greatness of the Lord Jesus from the most important person to the least, and nobody but nobody in heaven is going to care one iota about his or her own greatness. It won't even be on the radar. On that day, when you stand face to face with the greatness of Jesus, listen, anything that you may have obtained in this life is just going to pale in comparison. Paul says that it will be rubbish. It will be rubbish compared to the unsurpassable joy of being with Christ Jesus. Do you understand? If this is the destiny of all human history and the culmination of the kingdom of heaven, what sort of posture ought you and I to have? Jesus says here, he reminds us, turn, turn and become like children. This is his first point. You know, secondly here, Jesus wants to teach us how to practice true greatness. He's told us in the previous verses how we are to think in God's kingdom. And now in the remaining passage, I think he teaches us how to act. And that's really important, especially for these disciples. Remember, these men are going to become the basis of the early church. It matters. It really matters a whole lot what they think and what they value. 
The trouble, however, is that they're currently arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom. Why does that matter? Well, every kingdom you understand has a hierarchy. It has people who rule and those who are at the very top and people who are ruled who are at the very bottom. Those who are least in the kingdom serve those who are at the top and those who are greatest in the kingdom receive service from those who are at the bottom. And so when they come to Jesus, what they're really asking for is a ranking system. They want to know how far up am I really on this org chart? Who is going to serve me? And Jesus has some strong words for them, doesn't he? He gives them an encouragement in verse five. This is what you ought to do. And he gives them a warning in verse six. This is what you ought not to do. We'll look at the encouragement first. He says in verse five, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. You know, scholars think that Jesus is probably speaking of children here, certainly. Uh, But in context, he probably has others in mind also. All kinds of people who are thought to matter least in the eyes of the world. Remember, this is about rank and standing in the kingdom of heaven. And to the early listener, a child was the epitome of being the lowest. In other words, what is going to make these disciples great in God's sight is their ability to receive and serve the lowest people. It's a complete upside-down kingdom. It's those who are at the very top who have the responsibility and privilege of serving those who are at the bottom. And that's completely countercultural, isn't it? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I don't need to tell you that that's not how our society typically functions. But it is the way of the gospel. Jesus, the person who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven, will actually stoop down later to wash his disciples' feet. He tells them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Men and women, this is what true greatness looks like. It serves. And I grant you that serving the least doesn't sound very attractive, does it? It almost certainly would have been a turnoff for the disciples, and if we're honest, I think it is for us too. But here's why I think it matters, Grace Toronto. Here's why I think it matters. There's something about serving the least that is going to keep them, and by extension us, fully grounded in the faith. Jesus says, whoever receives the least of these in my name actually receives who? Me. Jesus. Jesus. You have to understand that in order for you to continue being fruitful and productive in the faith, you need to regularly and joyfully be receiving Christ in this kind of way. You must. It's too central to the gospel to ignore. But we do it all the time, don't we? Because listen, the danger of being a quote-unquote spiritually mature Christian is that it often emphasizes knowledge and ability to the detriment of service and humility because that's what we believe to be truly great. 
but you ought not to sacrifice those things because in your rejection of them, you will inadvertently have rejected the Christ you claim to follow. And that would be a real tragedy. Listen, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you must follow the example of the king. In fact, how you receive and serve others, it's actually a reflection of the kind of greatness that you possess. So which is it? Jesus says, watch your life closely. Because it's here that we finally arrive at Jesus' warning to his disciples in verse six. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. What a terrifying image. A millstone is this large circular stone that was used for grinding wheat and other grains. It was one of the heaviest everyday objects that a person would see and encounter in the ancient world. And Jesus says here that the person who leads one of his little ones into sin is liable to judgment. It's the very opposite of greatness. It's clearly hyperbolic language, we know that, but what is he saying here? Well, to the best of our knowledge, we think Jesus is speaking about believing children. However, based on the previous verses, scholars think that he might also be speaking about any believer who has the kind of childlike dependence that we were speaking about earlier. It's unclear, but there are merits for both. So, where does that leave us? Well, commentators think that verses five and six teach essentially the same idea, only expressing differently. What Jesus encourages his disciples to positively in verse five, he then warns them negatively in verse six. If serving and leading people towards dependence on God is greatness, then leading people astray from God is the absolute opposite. There is no blessing, only punishment. Now, there are many things that could be said about this verse, as there are many opinions about what this verse is actually saying. But the purpose of our time together, I want to say that God cares very much about those who depend on him by faith. We talked about that earlier. These are his children, and they are great in his kingdom. He both cares about how they are nurtured in the faith, and he cares about how they are hindered in the faith. And therefore, so should you. So should you. So how are we to apply that? Well, if you're a parent, I think this concerns you at the very least. Parents, this is a call for you to take seriously the task that God has given to you. It's no small thing either. It really, really matters. In fact, it's entirely possible that your greatest contribution to the kingdom may just be the son or daughter whom you help raise in the faith. I really mean that. So receive your children well and train them up to love and serve the Lord. And if you're not currently doing that, I want to gently stir you. According to the Bible, you and not your church have the primary responsibility to raise your children in the faith. We wanna help you, but you must put in the work. I often see many of you rushing your kids all over the city for music lessons and sports, gymnastics and tutoring, community service and a hundred other things. You are busy, busy, busy. 
when I ask you, what are you doing to disciple your children in the faith? I found that sometimes it's not even on your radar. Why is that? Why is that? You need to understand that the closest example of the kingdom that your children get to see every day is you. What would they learn about the kinds of Christians they are supposed to be from watching you? Would they see your dependence on Christ? Would they see your repentance? Would they see you being in the word every day? Would they see you seeking the Lord in prayer? I'd ask you to please think about that. This passage tells us that God really cares about their spiritual greatness, and you ought not to make yourself a hindrance. Congregation, what about you? Find ways to support our parents and family. Look, you don't hear that message from the pulpit often, so I don't mind saying it at least once on Children's Sunday. Pray for our parents and kids. Invest in their spiritual growth. Get to know some of their needs. Maybe consider even involving yourself with kids in our youth program. Every Sunday, every Sunday, we have a team of excellent volunteers downstairs in the basement who are making sure that the gospel is passed on to the next generation. We are busy training up an army of little ballistic missiles so that we can launch them into a world that desperately needs the good news of Jesus. And you can be part of that mission. Come talk with us after if you like. Other implications of this passage. Let's be mindful that we live in a culture that is constantly tempting us away from obedience to Jesus. Verse six. And as we rub shoulders with the culture, I think we will naturally pick up some of its values and bring these into the church. Which means this, that we ought to care a whole lot about how we nurture each other in the faith. And we ought to care a whole lot about how we may be hindering each other in the faith. I am mindful that those two things by themselves can be a whole separate sermon. But at the very least, I think it means that we are to be much more open and vulnerable with each other about our struggles. And it also means, I think, that we need to be really mindful of the ways we may be speaking or behaving that might cause a brother or sister to sin. It's really important. It really matters to God. I think also what we need is a deeper culture of gospel greatness at our church. And that means turning and becoming more and more like children. It means realizing our dependency on the Lord and going to Him regularly in word and prayer. It means receiving and serving each other for the good of the faith, just as Jesus has been teaching us here. So can we do that, Grace Strong Church? I want us to be a church that does that more. Because here's the really, really great news about this passage. That when we subscribe to the kind of greatness that Jesus here commands, we will begin to look less and less at ourselves and start to look more and more at the person of Jesus. We will show people by our words and conduct that he and we are truly better. And it will really, really show. I recently had the privilege of conducting a membership interview for someone wanting to join our church. It was a chance to meet a lovely young woman who is fairly new to our congregation. So I asked her, what brought you to Grace Toronto Church? What made you stay with us in the midst of a really, really hard season? 
I expected to hear something about the preaching or worship, the vision, or maybe even the community life here. Those are the things that typically attract us. Instead, I was surprised to find that wasn't even on her radar. She said, I have seen leaders and congregants here be humble about their sin and depend on Jesus. And that's a church I think I ought to be part of. I thought, wow, wow. You see, it wasn't the greatness of individuals here that attracted her to the church, but rather it's our dependence that made the gospel and the grace of Jesus that much more beautiful and great. I think that's the kind of church, I think that's the kind of church that Christ really wants us to be. So let's do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church that you have created. We thank you that it is a church founded on dependence to you and of being humble before you. We thank you that nobody has ever humbled himself like the person of Jesus. And that is why he is exalted and great and we will, we will be in heaven with you in the kingdom of heaven, rejoicing and celebrating and lavishly loving his greatness. Would you make him more sweet to us? Would you make his greatness more interesting and more palpable and more attractive to us? That all the things that we hoard up and desire for ourselves would grow increasingly pale. We pray this in the powerful and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we have maybe a few moments for questions, perhaps. Uh, yes, unfortunately our iPhone died. It was too me-centric, okay. so oh. the iPhone has passed. And uh, Well, I, I do have a couple of questions, actually. Um, we, we have time for one. I don't think that's allowed. Yeah, we only have one question <laughs> that's allowed. But if you did send in a question, please uh, just copy and paste that on your text message and then send it in an email to Tariq. He can respond to that uh, throughout the week at Tariq at graceround.ca. Uh, Tariq, maybe a helpful question uh, that, uh, that I, I had uh, is, um, given the week-to-week and how distracting it can be and also the tendency for us to be me-centric. What are some good diagnostic questions for us in the beginning of the day, middle of the day, and end of the day to check our hearts and to recalibrate our attention? Hmm. That's good. That's good. Um, I think we must constantly be asking this question of who is actually on the throne of my life? Who is king? Because the way you make those decisions in your life The way you spend your time, the way you spend your money will consistently fall into either one or two of those categories. We need to be very vigilant and thoughtful about that. I think one of the things that, I think one of the things that should really deeply inspire you to make Jesus the center of your life is, well, that picture in Philippians 2, that this is the end of the world. This is what things are going to look like. And if that's what greatness really means, if that's what we're all going to be doing together, Christians and non-Christians and everyone bowing their knees before the face of Jesus, then how ought I to live right now? What are the things that I desire? What are the things that I look to for greatness that are pale in comparison to the person of Jesus? Um, That's just the start of an answer, but um, yeah, I'd invite you to think about that. Thanks, Kinsey. At this time, we're going to transition to a time of reflection, and then we'll have our worship team come up and lead us in a song of reflection. Actually, you can come up now. Thank you. Let's pray.
God, we recognize having read your word and hear it spoken and preached and declare to us that greatness is an independence from you, but greatness is ultimately dependence on you. God, we as a church confess that in our own lives there are times when we mix that up. We think that we're great because we've become independent rather than dependent. Starting today, Lord, we come back to you and we turn back to you and we say, God, we want to fall on you. We want to lean on you. We want to put all our weight on you and trust you to carry us home. God, help us in our daily habits to establish a habit of dependence on you. Help us in our practice to practice dependence on you. Help us in our posture to adopt a posture of dependence on you. For the sake of your son's name and out of practice for what we will one day do when we stand before you in heaven. We will stand, but we will fall in wholehearted, deep, dependent worship of you. And so God, we confess this sin and ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please rise if you're able to for the song of reflection.